we have a pioneer, a leader, an amazing person in the keto and fasting space, Dr. Jason Fung. In a year, for 300, you know, 65 days a year and three meals a day, you're talking about a thousand meals. Even if you do a seven day fast, you're gonna miss 21 of your thousand meals. Like, how is that a big deal? Like, I just don't understand why people make such a big deal of it. And even like three meals, okay, you're gonna go do a 24 hour, 36 hour fast. You miss three meals out of a thousand that you had that year. So if you're 50 years old, you've eaten like, 50,000 meals and you've missed three and you think it's a big deal. You say, you think you're gonna die, right? It's like, I don't think so. What do people think body fat is there for? It's there for you to use, so use it. That's the whole point. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Dr. Jason Fung is a medical doctor, a Canadian nephrologist. He's a world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. Dr. Fung graduated from the University of Toronto and completed his residency at the University of California, Los Angeles. He currently lives and works in Toronto, Canada. Make sure you check out the resources in the notes of this podcast for more information on Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Jason Fung, thank you so much for coming on the Keto Camp Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm excited to share with you, my audience already knows you, but I'm excited to chat with you and have an amazing conversation to impact many lives. I want to hear about how you got into the health space. At what point of your life did you decide that you wanted to be, become a doctor or you wanted to make a difference with, with people working with them on their health? You know, I, I actually thought coming out of high school that I might go into engineering because I was sort of this math science person. And then sort of somewhere along the line, uh, just before I made my final decision in going to university, I kind of thought, you know, what, what I would like to do. And it was really an equal heat between <laughs> being a physician, which is what I had kind of always thought. My parents sort of encouraged that. Or being a, uh, an engineer and I really wanted to work on big jet engines. That's really what I wanted to do. It was very close, I have to say. But in the end, you know, it's in the end, I decided to be a physician. I'm not really even sure what tipped the balance. I'm, I'm, I can't even say because I, I did interview, you know, when you're deciding for university, I did interview for engineering very closely. And, um, 
but yeah, in the end, I thought, okay, being physicians, probably what is sort of more suited to to my style. And then even for a couple of years in university, I thought maybe I'd like to do research because I like new things and I like to think about things. And is it really being a physician or how about helping people by doing research? So again, it was also after two years, I applied to medical school. And it was, again, it's sort of an even heat between going and just doing pure research and becoming a physician. Uh, and, and again, it, it was sort of like uh, a dead heat. But I, in the end, I decided if I was a physician, I could still do research. So it's, it, it, you know, that way I could do both and not limit myself. So that's sort of where things came about. But, you know, you never know where things end up. It's, it's, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I am. So. Well, I can tell you this. Millions of people are happy that you chose the medical route because, if you were designing jet engines, yeah, that would be cool and all, but you wouldn't have impacted the lives that you're impacting. So thank God you chose the medical route because you're, you're making a big difference. It's, it's so cool to look back and see how you just connect the dots and how just one decision just impacts your life and, and so many others. So you, you decided on medical school. What made you decide on uh, nephrology, on the, on the kidneys, on kidney disease? What made you go in that direction? So, you know, even in medical school, there's all sort of different types of doctors and certain specialties appeal to different types of doctors. So a lot of the sort of sporty types, they go into orthopedics and sports medicine. A lot of the, uh, you know, the nurturing types, they go into like pediatrics. And so people sort of divide themselves according to their certain personalities within medicine. Nephrology is sort of a very... um, a specialty where you think a lot about stuff. That is, it's, there's there's a lot of complex things to do with dialysis and electrolytes and so on, and it's something that you generally have to think a lot about. But it's not like an action specialty like cardiology, where you just go in there and you throw in a stent, and uh, or surgery where you go in and cut somebody's, you know. Um, uh, appendix out. So it's sort of, it suited my personality better. And that's really why I really gravitated towards nephrology, just because it's sort of a thinking person sort of specialty. Internal medicine, which is all the internal organs, including say, you know, the heart and the kidneys and the liver, all of those are sort of uh, part of internal medicine, which is sort of this more uh, thinking specialty rather than, than the other. So I, I like that. I, it appealed to me. It suited my personality. Awesome. And right now you're, you're known for being a big advocate of a low-carb diet, intermittent fasting. At what point of your career did you start to realize that things were not working the way you wanted to work? And what shifted you in this direction of fasting and low-carb prior to how you worked on your patients before? What happened in your career? So what happened was that we saw, so kidney disease, the most important cause of kidney disease, really by far, is type 2 diabetes, which is obviously very closely related to uh, weight gain and obesity. So the way I was taught, and everybody is taught, uh, we learn all about medication, surgeries, procedures like dialysis, but you don't learn a lot about nutrition. So I really had no interest in any of that. It really wasn't considered part of the sort of medical specialty. It's sort of like, that's what dietitians do. It's not what doctors do sort of idea. And I thought like that for a long time as well. And it came to about sort of probably around 2010-ish that I really started to think that this is actually quite wrong because everybody knows that if you are overweight, you get type 2 diabetes, which gives you kidney disease. To treat the kidney disease with medications at that point 
is really the least effective way to treat people because you know the entire process. Therefore, if people don't gain weight, they don't get type 2 diabetes and they never get kidney disease, as opposed to treating the kidney disease at the end with some medications, which are a variable use, and then eventually holding their hand as they go on dialysis. So it was very unsatisfying to me to know that there's a disease that is sort of preventable, but I wasn't doing anything to prevent it. I was just seeing them when they got their kidney disease and then said, oh, here's some medication for you. And that's, you know, that's not what I signed up for. I'm there to make people better. So therefore, that's where I really, really sort of became very interested in the question of how do you lose weight? What causes weight gain? And, and, and the real question was to me, and I thought about it in a very medical sense, is what causes weight gain? Because that's the way you approach things. So if, if it's your appendix that's giving you problems, you need to know what the cause is so you can treat it. You don't just say, well, you have pain in your tummy, here's some Tylenol. That's not the right approach because you haven't taken care of the actual issues. So you have to really look at what the root cause of the disease is. And that's really what you should be doing in order to be successful. So then that's when I really, really started to look at the question of what causes weight gain. And I think that's a question that not a lot of people ever thought about because we all thought it was pretty obvious. Well, too many calories. Calories in, calories out. And as I looked into it further... I realized that the whole calorie sort of story is just not scientific at all. It's terrible. It's like the whole thing is all wrong uh, for a lot of reasons. And that was the first sort of moment I thought, well, this is sort of strange because everything I thought I knew, everything I've been taught in terms of weight gain and obesity, which is so important for so many of these diseases, is actually completely and utterly incorrect. You can go back and you can look and you can say, okay, well, are there any randomized control trials, which is sort of the gold standard of medical evidence that calorie-reduced diets will help you lose weight? And like, no, there's not. Is there any, you know, practical experience? I was like, yes. Literally billions of people have done calorie-reduced diets and like virtually none of them lose weight. So it's not like it was super successful. It was like super unsuccessful. And yet, I, as a physician, was pushing these calorie-reduced diets because that's all I knew. And I thought, okay, well, that's got to change. So that's really where I started to think about it very, and, and really, uh, you know, go back to sort of basics and say, what is causing weight gain and so on. And that's sort of what led to the obesity code, which is talking about really what the underlying cause of weight gain is. Then I came to the second question, which is that once you realize, okay, what causes weight gain and you know, for a lot of people, it's really hyperinsulinemia or too much insulin in the body. Then you come to the second question, which is very important in, in, in terms of treatment, in terms of what are you going to do about it? So there's several strategies to reduce insulin, obviously. So we're focused on calories when we should be focused on sort of the hormone insulin. So you can lower it with a carbohydrate-reduced diet. So that is successful up to a certain point. But then I thought, well, you know, I, I tried it for a lot of patients and, you know, some were successful, some were not successful. But then I thought, well, you know, there's got to be like a better way to do this because, you know, obesity in the 1970s is virtually non-existent and now it's sort of like 70% of the American adult population. So that's when I started to think about fasting. And of course, the first thing I thought was, wow, that's a really, really bad idea. 
And there's the same process. I was thinking like, okay, well, wait a second here. I think it's a bad idea because that's what everybody tells me. Oh, you're going to go into starvation mode and you're going to be so hungry. You're going to be forced to stuff donuts in your mouth. But then I thought, okay, well, let's think about this for a second and let's look at what the medical literature actually says about fasting. And again, the same thing is like, it was completely the opposite of what I thought I knew, which is fascinating and a huge opportunity because, hey, if here's a, a strategy that has been used for thousands of years and nobody's using it, then I can use it and make people better. And what was interesting was that as I started to introduce some of this stuff to patients, and because uh, you know that's what I do, I see patients, some of the, the, the stories were just incredible. Like, and we published a couple of these. We, we published case series on a couple of these. And essentially people with 20 plus years of type two diabetes, it was like gone in like, you know, a month and a half sort of thing. And it was, these were patients I was treating. I'm like, whoa, I just treated you wrong for the last 10 years because I just took away the whole thing just by changing your diet. And it's not easy. So, you know, I don't want people to get the, the impression that, oh, hey, just make this quick switch and it's, you know, all sunshine and unicorns. It's tough and you got to stick to it. You got to work at it. Fasting's less fun than say eating pizza and donuts. So you have to really give people the support and the education that they need. And a lot of people were dead set against it because their doctors would tell them, Hey, you know, that's the worst thing you could do. And in fact, just this morning I saw a patient and they said the same thing. I had told them, Hey, you should do some fasting. They went to talk to their, their physician and their dietitian. And then he came back to me and said, I haven't done it because they told me it's the worst thing I could possibly do for my type two diabetes. I'm like, well, you can do whatever you like, but you know, he, his A1C was like 10. So it's like, he wasn't doing great on the standard diet. So that's sort of how things came about that I really became uh, really interested in sort of both weight loss and intermittent fasting as a treatment uh, because low-carb di uh, diets have been around for a long, long time. They've been around since Atkins and successful to a certain degree. And of course, had been really coming back in terms of ketogenic diets, which was slightly different than sort of an, and even paleo diets, sort of variations on uh, Atkins style diets. But nobody had really been talking about intermittent fasting, especially like five, six years ago when I really started talking about this. Nobody was talking about intermittent fasting. And it's sort of you know, when you think about it, it's actually the most obvious thing that you can do. Yeah, and nobody was talking about it. Now it's one of the most searched terms on uh, Dr. Google, and you're, you're a big part of that. It, it is obvious, right? When you don't eat, you lose weight. You eat, you gain weight. Insulin goes up, you store fat. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I want to know, why are there so many sophisticated people out there who have PhDs, and I'm not going to name names, but they're very smart people who say that if you want to lose weight, you just got to cut your calories and exercise more. It's all an energy expenditure hypothesis to lose weight. Why are they still saying this to this day? I think it's because it's very difficult if you've built sort of a career based on calories. And you got to realize that there's a lot of people that are very interested in keeping the focus on calories. And they got busted a few years ago. So Coca-Cola, for example, had been funding the University of Colorado to promote this global energy balance consortium or something like that. And it was profiled in the New York Times because what Coca-Cola wanted to do, of course, was to keep people focused on calories so that they could say, well, if you eat 100 calories of broccoli, it's as fattening as 100 calories of Coca-Cola, which of course is completely not true. Like who gets fat eating broccoli? Like 
just about nobody. But they, they wanted to make that sort of equivalent so that you don't think that there's anything particularly wrong with that sugary soda that you're about to drink and it's very profitable for them. So they have a vested interest in keeping the focus on calories because, of course, they are peddling sugary drinks. Uh, which is sort of the opposite of what what I and most other people who are reasonably intelligent about nutrition say. There's a bunch of calorie like diehards who are like, oh no 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 no, cookies and salmon are the same if they're the same calories. I'm like, you guys are idiots because the minute you put those foods in your mouth, the hormonal response is completely and utterly different. That is, if you eat cookies, your insulin spikes way up. If you eat salmon or an egg or an avocado, same calories, totally different hormonal response. Insulin goes, uh, you know, goes nowhere, but peptide YY, which is a satiety hormone, or cholecystokinin, which is a satiety hormone, they go up. So it's a totally different response of your body to different foods. And that's obvious. We can measure that. There's no reason you can't measure that. But for some reason, people still say, oh, no, no, it's about calories. So... The thing is that if you're brought up with this idea that it's calories, if you've written a bunch of papers that it's about calories, it's all about calories, ketogenic diets work because they restrict calories. I'm like, whatever you say, right? It's like, you can argue that the point is that it's very convenient for certain food companies and beverage companies to keep that focus because then you can do two things. You can equate all foods. So that all of a sudden your, your sugary soda is no worse than anything else. And you can equate diet and exercise because diet and exercise are totally different things. Diet is what you eat. It affects the liver mostly. Exercise is mostly about skeletal muscle. They're totally different. There's nothing the same about them. But, but through the magic of calories, you can say, well, if you, you know, walk a hundred minutes, you'll burn off X amount of calories, which means you could eat, you know, this many cookies. Uh, there's nothing the same about them because again, they're completely different physiologic pathways and calories is not a physiologic term. There's no calorie receptors in our body. Our body doesn't respond to calories. Our body responds to proteins, fats, and, you know, and carbohydrates. That's what it does. It doesn't care about calories in any way. So you can't equate them because again, you can't exercise your liver, for example. So you eat a lot of cookies, for example, your liver is going to store fat, your insulin is going to go way up, you're going to store a lot of glycogen. If you store too much, then you wind up making fat with de novo lipogenesis. Well, how does exercise impact that? Not at all. So you're going to be healthier in that you're going to be stronger, but you're going to still have a fat liver and develop type 2 diabetes. So exercise and diet are completely separate things, but calories makes them the same. And that's why Coca-Cola was so interested to make all of a sudden this obesity crisis is not a crisis of, hey, you're drinking too much Coca-Cola. It's a crisis of, hey, you should have got off your butt and exercise, which is like, okay, now you've just changed the whole story of what the problem was. And if you don't know the problem, you can't fix it. Because if you think that you can eat cookies and drink Coke and then exercise and you'll be healthy, you're wrong. But Coca-Cola wants you you to be right. So they spent so much money. Like there's physicians, for example, at the University of Toronto where I am, and they've written in the newspaper and they've written papers about how fructose and sugar is almost a health food. I'm like, okay, you've got to be kidding me. 
It's like, how can you think it's almost a health food? It's ridiculous. But yet he's, he goes and writes papers. Then you look at his conflicts of interest and he's paid by Coca-Cola and he's been, you know, he's been sent all over the world by Coca-Cola and all this sort of stuff. And he gets into the newspaper, he goes, Coca-Cola, you know, buys a lot of influence. So it's, it's sort of like, that's why there's so much interest in keeping this whole calorie story, but it's, it's sort of, um, there's a lot of conflicts there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a huge distraction to what really matters. And you just broke down what really matters. It's the hormonal response, the metabolic response from those calories. You could have gone down that path because you had a decision. You, you built your career uh, mostly in the conventional world, what you just spoke about. And then you came across research. You, you found out that it was not working for you. And then you had a decision to make. You had a decision to explore the ketogenic diet, a low-carb diet, and intermittent fasting or stick to your guns and do what you you built your career doing. So what was it for you? Because you made that switch, and that must have been so difficult. And I'm sure some of your peers, you got some some backlash. So I'd love for you to share how difficult that transition was for you, and what kind of backlash did you receive at that point of your career? Yeah, so there was a huge backlash, especially to sort of like low-carb diets were around, so people knew about them, but nobody wanted to hear about ketogenic diets, which were sort of much higher in fat than the usual. And fasting, of course, nobody wanted to hear about. And the thing is that it's so much easier just to sort of say, oh, well, you know, I guess there are experts. And this is what most people say is like, well, they're experts in nutrition and they say it's all about calories and also... Um, you know, my local university affiliated endocrinologist or whatever says it's all about calories, so they must be right. But, you know, to me, again, it, it didn't really satisfy me in terms of searching for what was really true, because it made no sense at all. You know, if you're not that interested in it, then you'd probably just leave it. You'd say, you know, whatever, you know, there's a there's a minor mystery here, but I'm just going to go off because I'm busy and my kids have hockey and whatever, right? But that's not sort of the way I am. I sort of get really interested, like obsessed with these questions. And, and when things don't sort of match up, that interests me sort of intensely from a sort of scientific standpoint. I mean, that's why I'm interested and in, that's why I was so interested in like research, for example, you know, because there are these sort of puzzles that are, that need to be figured out. And that's really what I was trying to get. And it's like, that's why I really made that switch. So I was, I was, because I was so, so interested in this question, this sort of scientific puzzle, because it impacted so many people. But on the other hand, I just get sort of that way in that um, I don't like it when things don't make sense to me. And when I see it's glaring omission, I want to get to the bottom of it. So that's, that's sort of why. And then so as I started to talk about it, it's the same thing. It's really difficult at first because really I was out there mostly on my own. And of course, there were some other people talking about it, but not specifically about fasting. But there was a few people that were very interested in that. Um, you know, so like Andreas of Diet Doctor and Professor Tim Noakes and sort of thing. So there's a, there was a number of people, Gary Taubes obviously had talked about this, although not exactly in the same uh, manner, but he talked about this sort of conundrum as well for many years. So that's, but as you, as you talk about it, there's a lot of people who don't want to hear it because they're not that interested to them. It's just sort of this minor problem and let's just go with what everybody else says. And I'm this voice that's saying, no. So of course there's a lot of backlash, but then 
sort of funny thing happened because patients were getting better when they were doing the fasting. And at the end of the day, you can't ignore that because this is what we do. This is my job is to make people better. And so the thing is that other doctors had noticed. So within my area, like a lot of family physicians and so on, they would see, oh, hey, there's this patient that I had with 20 years of type 2 diabetes that just went away. They lost weight. They got off all their medications and they're super happy. And to other physicians, that's sort of proof like in the flesh and you can't ignore that. So that's where it became very, very hard to deny that this is a reasonable alternative for people. I'm not saying that everybody has to do it, but it's a reasonable alternative for people to, to use. And so that's, that's sort of where it all started. And then I wrote, you know, the, the books to really sort of explain it to people and everybody, you know, and, and, and I think that the obesity code is really about that sort of how, explaining how it all comes about. And it's, everybody thinks that it's like a lay book because it's published, you know, as a book, but like you know most doctors don't know any of the information in that and i always think in my mind that this is actually a book that i want physicians to read it's great if lay people read them and understand it but this is what i actually think physicians need to understand and then the complete guide to fasting is more of a of a sort of a um, practical guide that can really help people so it's a bit different focus yeah, and I have both of those right here. And uh, if you haven't read it, definitely, if you're watching this on YouTube, you could see the books, get them. All of his books are, are incredible. I love that mission of yours right there if, if, for every doctor to have the obesity code. Jason, a few years ago, well, for most of my life, my parents immigrated from Iran back in the 70s, and they had my sister and then me, and I was born here in Miami. My father developed type 2 diabetes when I was a young kid, and I remember him struggling with it his whole life, and I didn't really understand the disease most of my life. And every year, I just saw his health deteriorate, and it was about six years ago. I would take him to his doctor's appointments every month. I would fill up his medication. I would get the dietary advice from his doctors, and they, they would tell me to buy him you know, like sugar-free Gatorade and Fiber One bars, and he could eat a lot of food and stay away from fat, and, and I followed that advice. I, I trusted the doctor's advice. And six years ago, he suffered a massive stroke um, from the diabetes, and he lost the ability to speak. He lost complete uh, right side function, and he was essentially on his deathbed for nine months. And I, and I watched his, his life just leave his body every time I went to go visit him. And it was a very difficult time in my life, and it was five years ago. It was actually August 12, 2014, where I went to go visit him, and he was in the worst shape. And uh, he ended up passing away the day after I, I visited him that night. And ever since that happened, I set out to, to study diabetes, to study what's going on with this epidemic. And so many people have this disease and why the advice that I, I trusted didn't work. The advice that they gave me didn't work. And I've come to the conclusion after reading your books, after reading so much great books out there, that the information that I now know, the information that you share would have saved his life. He'd still be here today if I had this information and I also understand that I was given that, that mountain so I could show the world that this mountain can be moved. So I am 100% on board with your mission. And just going through that situation with my dad, I know there's so many people out there that are going through that right now. And there are so many people that are going to hear this. This is what makes me happy. They're going to hear this interview 
and they don't have to go through that. They're going to start becoming a genius and not just an intellectual, like Albert Einstein said, intellectual solve problems, geniuses prevent them. They're actually going to be proactive. So I'm so excited about this interview, and I wanted to share that with you because I, I felt like it's, it's really relevant to what you do, and I want to say thank you for your work. Absolutely, and that was really my hope is that people would be able to you know, take that information and, and have a practical sort of intervention and be able to prevent really diabetes, type 2 diabetes, because it's a reversible disease. And, you know, I, the whole calories thing, it bothers me. But it bothered me even more because I think that the standard treatment of all type 2 diabetics for many, many, many years, and, and, and I did it for years, right, for 15 years. So I understand where these doctors are coming from. They really didn't know any better. This is what we were taught. And we thought that we could trust these university professors and so on. Um, but I also came to the conclusion that most treatment for type 2 diabetes is completely and utterly incorrect. Like we focus on the wrong thing. We focus on getting the sugar down by giving medications when we should have been focusing on the diet to make people lose weight. Because if you lose weight, your diabetes gets better. And for some reason, that just never percolated down to the diabetes specialist. For them, they want to give more medications, especially insulin, which is which is notorious for causing weight gain. And it's like the whole thing is completely illogical in that you have a disease of type 2 diabetes. And this is what I go over. And this is the reason I wrote the diabetes code, which is sort of very specific to type 2 diabetes and how to prevent and reverse it. Because that's actually much closer to me because that's what I see every day. I was tired of seeing it. And I still get sad when I see a type 2 diabetic that I have to put on dialysis or they get their foot chopped off because I think the same thing. If I had gone to you 10 years ago, I could have prevented all of this. And the thing is that what doesn't make any sense is that really we know that people with type 2 diabetes, the whole disease is that they have too much sugar in their body. So the question is, what does a, a medication like insulin or something like that do? Does it get rid of the sugar? If it doesn't, it's not actually doing you any good. And that's the problem. And we had the studies to prove that 10 years ago, that just giving more medications for type 2 diabetes is not effective at preventing complications. That is heart attacks, strokes, cancer, kidney disease, blindness, that kind of thing. And so here we had, again, this super important disease in, in the United States and Canada. And I was thinking that everything about it was being treated completely and utterly incorrectly. And that's that's really where this came from. That's why I wrote very shortly after, you know, to me, it's sort of the same thing, obesity and type 2 diabetes, because we're very close to the link, but that was what the diabetes code was about. To let people understand, again, this is what the disease is, and this is how to treat it, and you can reverse it if you stick to it. And, and that's what I hope, too, that people, that, that you wouldn't have, like, like your dad, wouldn't have to do this in the future if we let enough people know. And hopefully it's, you know, hopefully we make it, you know, we move the needle somewhere. Yeah, and we are. We definitely are. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they have type 2 diabetes or a family member has it, and they're taking insulin and the blood sugar is going down, where is the sugar going if it's showing that on their glucose meter it's going down? Where, where is the sugar actually going? Yeah, <laughs> people don't think about it like that, but it's super, super logical because it's like, okay, if body is not getting rid of the sugar, where did it go? Because the blood sugar went down, the sugar went into the liver, got turned into fat and gained weight. 
And as you gain weight, everybody knows that that type 2 diabetes is going to get worse. So it's like, okay, you're taking a medication that is eventually making your type 2 diabetes worse. Like, that's not the right thing to do. Like, you're supposed to be making it better. And, and that's the point. But you can use this sort of free, natural intervention like intermittent fasting to say, well, if your uh, blood sugar is going down because you're fasting, where'd it go? Well, it all got burnt off for energy. That's where it went. We know where it went. So it's like it's so much more logical to treat it in this way. And it explains all so much about the disease because why is there so much type 2 diabetes now and there wasn't 20, 30, 40 years ago? And, you know, you ask regular physicians, they'll say, I don't know. You know, people are taking too many calories. I'm like, okay, show me your physiologic pathway of how calories leads to type 2 diabetes. Like, please, like, show me any physiologic pathway because we're supposed to be so science based in medicine where calories even comes in. Because the calorie of a fat, protein, and carbohydrate are totally different. They're metabolized differently. They have different metabolic fates. Protein, for example, is, is not a store of energy. It's used to build protein. So, you know, if you take too much, of course it does. But there's other pathways, right? There's mTOR. There's other pathways that, that get activated. AMPK. We know all this stuff. But where's calories? We don't see it anywhere. And yet somehow it's the root of all our problems. It's like this sort of phantom menace that's around that you want to blame everything on this sort of phantom menace. And it's like, it's not the right thing. Because then you take your eyes off the ball, right? Because if you're thinking all about calories, then you think you can drink diet sodas all day and be fine. Well, I'll tell you, I know tons of people who drank diet sodas all day, didn't lose any weight. They did much worse. Yeah, it's a distraction. So it's, it's a complete distraction. So how many people have gone through your clinic at the IDM program and have you put on a fasting protocol? Do you have an estimation? It's, it's several thousand at least. It's quite a few. So we've changed it. So we used to just run it. And the reason we have so many is that, again, something that was different that we did. Uh, so Megan Ramos is who works with me very closely for the last sort of 10 years. She's amazing, by the way. Yeah, she's an amazing educator. So she actually... Uh, you know, almost went to medical school too, but then wound up doing this because this was, she thought was more life-changing. But the thing is that when I started, I took a medical approach to it. So instead of saying, okay, well, here's somebody who's fasting and there, there have been fasting clinics in Germany, for example, and you pay 3000 euros and you go for a week and you fast. Well, you're not going to get many people doing it for 3000 euros uh, for a week. But I took a sort of more approach because I'm a physician. The way I approach it is that a patient comes to see me and 10 minutes later, I tell them what they need to do. Sometimes I give them a prescription or whatever. And then I book a follow-up appointment and, and I see people very, you know, I see a lot of people every day. So I did the same thing with the fasting. It's not something that I'll spend like weeks on one person with. It's like you come in, I tell you what you need to do. And then 10 minutes later, I see the next person and tell them what to do. So I'm seeing 20, 30 people a day, five days a week, you know, year after year, the numbers just sort of add up. So it's been at least several thousand people that we've treated. I mean, now we're trying to sort of expand it a bit so that we have more, you know, make 
this approach sort of available online so that it's not sort of local within my area in Toronto, that we can help people sort of all over. So it's, it's thousands of people. And, you know, some of the stories are just, they make me so happy because it's like, somebody will read it or listen to a podcast and then just start doing it because it's their own decision. They, and then they get off their medications and their doctors are flabbergasted. They don't know what's happened. You know, they're losing weight. They're off their medications. They're super healthy. Their blood work has come back to normal. And it's something that people, you know, I've been able to help them take control of their own health, which is incredible because type 2 diabetes before, like, and you know, your dad would be like, you go to the doctor, you get another prescription or you get more insulin and then you go home and, you, and it's like, what do you do about it? Well, nothing. Eat low fat diet. That's all you can do about it. And you eat low fat diet until, you know, everything tastes like cardboard and you still didn't get better. And this was the problem. But here's something that they could do themselves to actually make themselves better. And it's not some sort of fad because I saw this the other day. Oh, it's a fad. I'm like, Right. The fad that's been around for like 5,000 years, right? <laughs> that's a hell of a fad. I mean, you know, they talked about it in the Bible. My, my, you know, every time, every year around uh, Easter, around Lent, we talk about fasting every single year for the last like 10 years. Actually, I probably didn't pay attention much, but in the last five <laughs> years for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, de it's definitely not a fad. It's a fact. Yeah, it's been around since the dawn of humankind. Long. So as I said, it's like since the beginning of at least, you know, Catholicism in, in the year zero sort of thing, because we're in the year 2019. So, okay, minimum 2019 years where people have talked about fasting. And they didn't talk about it as some sort of terrible thing. They talked about it in terms of you know, purification and cleansing and all this sort of virtuous uh, sort of thing. So it's like, yeah, it's a 2000 year old fad. And here you are talking about it as if it, we just came up with it. Like nobody, I didn't come up with it. I mean, I just talked about it because it, it was logical to me. So yeah. And so sometimes you see this once in a while, but at least it's being talked about, which is totally different than five years ago. Like nobody talked about it because it wasn't done. So now at least you get that out there. And I think it's because people are listening because it's so logical. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense. And you start, people are starting to know other people who have had sort of incredible success and they want to replicate that success. And that's, that's great because it's a snowball effect because as one person sees their friend getting healthier or coming off their medication or losing weight, they want to know, what did you do? And they'll say, well, I tried this. And then, and these people, I always feel for them. They're like, you know, I've tried every diet in the book. And here's a new thing that they hadn't heard of. So it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's going to work. And, and sometimes they try it and sometimes it works. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a great feeling to, to, to be a privilege to that. Absolutely. And social media is a huge reason why, like podcasts like this, they're able to spread like wildfire. And I, we have a few minutes left. I have three quick questions. Before I get to those three quick questions, a lot of the backlash I get from when I give lectures on health and I always talk about fasting, and I always ask the question in the audience and I ask them, what do you think is the, the Guinness World Record for the longest recorded fast? And I hear, you know, seven days, 21 days, maybe 40 or 60. Uh, but it doesn't go any much more than that. What is the Guinness World Record for the world's longest recorded fast? Like 382 days. This is like ridiculously long. And it was monitored and, you know, and 
they wrote it up in a medical journal and so on. And it's, it's quite amazing how long you can go without food. You know, and, and, and the, the guy apparently had felt well through that entire thing. They wrote up the whole case history and he felt great and, you know, didn't feel sick or anything. Because you hear all these things about fasting. Oh, you're going to be weak. You're not going to be able to concentrate. And it's, 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 it's just strange that the truth is almost exactly the opposite <laughs> of that. Most people feel so much better and feel more energy and more concentration and better abilities. And, you know, to me, the, always the, you know, the most important thing is, you know, that people feel well through that entire thing. So that's, that's an incredible thing. And it gives people a sense like, hey, you know, the other way to think of it, you know, is that if, if you know, not going with food for one day is not a big deal if the world record is 380 days. But the other thing to think about is in a year for 300, you know, 65 days a year and three meals a day, you're talking about a thousand meals. Even if you do a seven day fast, you're going to miss 21 of your thousand meals. Like, how is that a big deal? Like, I just don't understand why people make such a big deal of it. And even like Three meals. Okay, you're going to go do a 24-hour, 36-hour fast. You miss three meals out of a 1,000 that you had that year. So if you're 50 years old, you've eaten like 50,000 meals and you've missed three and you think it's a big deal. It's like you think you're going to die, right? It's like, I don't think so. What do people think body fat is there for? It's there for you to use. So use it. That's the whole point. Exactly. It, it's an amazing mechanism, the fact that we store fat to survive. Okay, final three questions, Jason. Uh, number one, what what's the most excited thing that you're working on right now? The most exciting thing, I think, I'm working on a book on cancer, which is a very, very interesting topic, I have to say. And it's not purely related to diet, but there is a dietary component to it. So it's not a it's not just about diet, but what we see is that there are certain diets that are related to weight. And this is actually new knowledge since about 2003-ish. We didn't know this. We thought, well, cancer is caused by mutations, cancer is caused by viruses, cancer is caused by radiation, for example. We knew those cancers, but we didn't expect to find is that is you... If you are overweight or type 2 diabetes, your risk of certain types of cancers is way up. And that's breast cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreas, liver. So there's a, there's a couple of them. So the World Health Organization actually classifies 13 uh, different types of cancer as obesity related. And it explores sort of what causes cancer, what the mechanisms are, because it's super exciting because here's another disease like a terrible disease, like breast cancer, colorectal cancer, where you can do something. So it's not something that you just say, oh, okay, you're going to get breast cancer or colon cancer. You can actually do something to reduce your risk, which is avoid type 2 diabetes, avoid obesity, but explore sort of the mechanisms of that. Yeah. When, when do you expect that to be out? Uh, probably next year. Wow, I can't. I can't wait for that. That's going to be incredible. But it, it actually explores the whole story of what cancer is, because that has undergone a complete revolution in the last sort of ten years, and I don't think anybody actually knows it. Like I talk to people, and it's like they're still talking about this sort of old thinking about cancer as this genetic mutations disease. It's, it's, it, the story has completely changed in, in that time, but I think it's still limited to a small number of sort of specialists that see it that way. 
Yeah, I had Dr. Nasha Winters on the on the show earlier uh, on this podcast, and it was, she's explained a lot about that. So I can't wait for that book. Second question is, what are you grateful for today? So I'm really grateful that I'm I've been able to help a lot of people in this way because again, it comes back to your original question about sort of why you went into medicine. And the reason you go into medicine is to help people. And if you are a doctor, you get you do have the privilege to help people, but it's it's limited to the people that you can see and touch and so on, you know, and it's been great. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. But, you know, to be able to help sort of millions of people or thousands of people, it's, it's special. It's, it's, it's really great to be able to do that. Yeah, it is. And my final question for you, Jason, is what is your definition of perfect health? I think perfect health, you know, to me is everything, uh, you know, sort of working, uh, the way it's supposed to be. So there's, you know, there's obviously avoiding disease, which is one part of health, but then there's all those other uh, parts of health, which is, you know, making sure you're getting good exercise and, um, you know, making sure you're eating a healthy diet and having a period of fasting kind of every day. You know, that that to me is is what health is about. You know, I always say that, so if you look at um, aging, aging is sort of inevitable in one way, in that chronologically, you can't turn that sort of river of time backwards. It goes forward. But physiologically, you can actually go either way. So you can get older, you can age from a physiologic standpoint, but you can actually reverse a lot of those changes of aging with the proper diet and lifestyle, because it's not that river that moves one way. You can actually move it back the other way. And this is the same thing with in terms of uh, type 2 diabetes, for example, that's going to age you like really fast. You're going to get heart disease, you're going to get stroke, you get all that. But these are all changes that increase with age, but increase even more with type 2 diabetes, but you can get rid of that type 2 diabetes. So you can actually reverse that. So you're almost sort of going backwards in time to sort of restore a lot of health. And, and, and to me, it's, it's about trying to reverse all those uh, changes that we can. Obviously, it's not perfect, but it's, it's something that we can do that we didn't think that we could do sort of like five, six years ago. We didn't think we could reverse type 2 diabetes. We didn't think we could reverse obesity. We couldn't, didn't think we could do all these things, but we can. And that's, you know, that's to me is very exciting. It is. It's very empowering for the, for the person listening right now. And I want to say, as we close off this interview, I know you got to run. Thank you so much. I want to acknowledge you for your work. Everything that I do, all the people that I educate, your fingerprints are all, all over that. And you said you, you're you happy to help a thousand, uh, thousands of people, millions of people. I think before it's all said and done, there's going to be billions of people that you have helped with your work. And what you're doing out there is so valuable. Like I said, it would have my father will still be here today if I used your work. So I want to say thank you so much for what you're doing. And if you need anything at all, know that I support you 100%, Jason. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. What an awesome interview that was. Uh, I'm so grateful that you stuck around to listen to the entire episode. I know, I know it blew your mind because it blew mine. Make sure you share this. If you have somebody in your life with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, somebody who's obese or overweight, please share this episode with them. Just copy and paste the link and just share it with them via text or whatever it is on social media. It could save their life. This information can save their life. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out the notes 
of this podcast, you're going to see detailed notes. We have somebody working full-time who puts everything we spoke about, every resource, every link in the notes section. So go ahead and do that and check out Dr. Fung's work for sure. Make sure you screenshot this and post it on your Instagram and tag me either on your story or on your Instagram feed. My handle is at TheBenazadi, T-H-E-B-E-N-A-Z-A-D-I. Go ahead and tag me. I'll be sure to share that so we can get some people following you back. If you're not subscribed to this podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. If you got any value from this, please make sure to do so. And if you haven't claimed my Keto Kickstart Guide, I talk about intermittent fasting on there. I talk about how to do keto the right way, diet variation, hormone optimization, and so many cool tips for you to just accelerate your results. And it's a free guide. You could get it at www.ketokickstartguide.com to claim that free ebook. If you're not subscribed to the Keto Camp YouTube channel, we are releasing five, six, seven sometimes brand new videos on that channel. It is the ultimate resource for keto fasting, longevity, and performance. Go to youtube.com slash keto camp to learn more. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me and, and Dr. Fung. We surely appreciate it. And you will hear me on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.